You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Every time I see that slide, I go back to the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, which I almost used but didn't. Um, And you'll thank me for that when you're not singing it for the rest of the day. Uh, Today we are um, picking up where we left off last week um, in the book of Matthew, right? In chapter 6. Okay. Um, So we are in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, our, main, our main passage is uh, verses 25 through 34. We're going to review a little bit of uh, last week's before we dive in full. But I want to ask you a question first. Any of you guys worried about something today? <laughs> Chuckle from the front row, okay? So maybe, maybe one person has a worry, and hopefully um, you all have those. Not that hopefully you have worries, but, you know, he's not alone in that, right? Um, did anything keep you guys up last night? Anybody? Am I the only one? Um, okay. I, uh, here's confession time. I was at district assembly this week, and I had the best of intentions to find time to work on my message. Um, I'd been studying the passage and reading the passage, and I'd, I'd done some study in advance, but I'd yet to sit down and actually put out the outline to figure out where I was going to go. Um, and uh, week is going by, and I'm thinking, oh, I've still got time, I've still got day. And we got to yesterday, and I get on the airplane, and I'm like, I got, I got no message for tomorrow. And I started to worry, because, like, that's my job, right? <laughs> like, the, the one thing that is in my big, the biggest thing in my job description, make sure that I faithfully preach the word on Sunday morning. And I got on the plane to come home at 11 o'clock in the afternoon going, uh, I'm worried. Um, and then I, I opened my passage, oh, wait, Jesus says, don't worry. That doesn't, that doesn't work for me because I need to worry about this so that I can get something accomplished. How many of you worry about your family? Anybody? Yeah? What about work? Any of you worry about work? Finances? Okay. Health? The future? Yeah, okay. Those are just a few categories, all right? Life is full of worries. Um, and regardless of the immensity of the worry, or the triviality of the worry, because some worries are just, they're smaller in scale than others. They're still worries. And it's not the worry that should determine our lives, but our response to it, right? Worries are going to come and go, but how we respond to them is what is important. In fact, um, Jesus knew that worrying would be a besetting issue for us. By that, I mean that it would be one that would keep us up at night. One area in which we would continually question his love for us. One in which we would continually question his provision and his protection. He knew we would doubt his sovereignty and his compassion. Worry is something he knew we would have a problem with. And we know this because he spoke on it so often. Fear not. It's the most frequently uttered command in the entire Bible. Fear not. The first five books of the Bible have 613 commands. And if you take the totality of the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, the 66 books of Scripture, and you pull out every single command, the one that is repeated the most by far is fear not, i.e. don't worry. 
Stop fearing. This must have been a continual issue down through time because the Bible was written over the course of a few thousand years by roughly 40 different authors inspired by the Holy Spirit in multiple nations across many languages. And through all of that, one thing is consistent. People are governed by their fears, and so God had to say always and forever, fear not. And the word of God is timeless, right? From the beginning of time when it was first written down through time, it has maintained its continuity and its accuracy. It's timeless, which means it's timely for us this morning. When God says fear not, he's not talking just to the people of old who are about to enter into battle, but he talks to us this morning and our hearts. In all those times that you raised your hand, he's going to say to you, fear not. So let me say this as we get into the passage today. We believe the Bible. We're a Bible-believing church. So if you've not been to church before, you've not been to church in a while, or you're not quite sure what church is, um, biblical church is one that is founded on the Word of God. We believe that this scripture is passed down from God's mind and heart through the hands of men to us so that we might know who God is, how much he loves us, and how we might live in relationship with him, that we are called to a holy life after Christ. The Bible is ultimately one story made up of a bunch of little stories that tell about one person, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And we've read in the book of Matthew thus far that God became man. He was born into human history, that God wrapped himself in flesh, that he walked the earth, and he endured, endured all the kinds of things that we have endured. And he relates to us and loves us and sympathizes with us. And so this Jesus that we read about in the Bible is an example about how to live life. In fact, he's the only one in Scripture that we would look to and say, we want to do what he does. Everyone else in Scripture, more often than not, we would look at and go, we don't want to do what they did. Jesus is the only one in the book of Scripture we can continually say, this is the perfect example by which we must live. He's our perfect example. He's our Savior. He died and he rose again to take away our sin, and he sent to us the Holy Spirit that we might live a life patterned after his life, which was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We saw early on in Matthew that Jesus is King who brought about a new kingdom, and that the Holy Spirit descended on him at his baptism. And then we learned, as we've continued in the book of Matthew, that Jesus was filled with this Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And so we don't come to the Bible just to get a checklist of things to do to make our life Christian. We come to the Bible to understand who Jesus is and how to live in relationship with the Holy Spirit. We come to learn the truth of Jesus, to have him take away our sin and to send us the Holy Spirit so that we might be obedient to his teachings and following in his example because Jesus is Lord over all, right? And all means all. So that means everything you just raised your hand for, Jesus is Lord over that. And he's going to challenge us with that this morning because it's very easy to say, oh, God's Lord over everything. But when we worry about something, we are actually putting that worry over and above God's lordship in our life. Allow me to pray for us this morning, and then we will read our scripture. Lord, 
You are a good God. Time and time again, we want to confess that out loud because sometimes in our heart we forget. So we say it with our mouth. The word says that if we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart, and sometimes the confessing with our mouth, it just helps us when our ears hear it to believe it. It encourages our own selves and it encourages the other people around us that you are Lord and we love you. And so this morning as we look at a difficult passage that talks about worry, um, there might be a tug of war in our hearts this morning because you've told us to live in such a way in which we would be open-handed with all of our possessions, to sell it all and to give it all away if you would ask us to do so with our time and with our money and with our possessions. And yet, Lord, our heart goes but, 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 and we start to worry. And you speak to us this morning. In the middle of our worry, you give a voice that we might listen to and draw comfort, that you are Lord over our life and that worry needs to be subjected to you, not exalted over you. And this morning, as we read your word, would you calm our fears? Would you, would you whisper into our hearts, fear not, for I am with you? Lord, would you encourage us as well uh, to seek you and your righteousness before we do anything else? And we give you the praise and the glory for who you are and for what you do. And we pray this in your son's name, who is exalted above all other things. And his name is Jesus. Amen. All right. So, um, if you will remember, last week we talked about laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven, right? Um, Where moth and rust don't destroy. And it was the idea of about investing your life and everything that you are and have into the kingdom of God. We talked about his call to the disciples where he basically said, sell it all, give it all away, don't take anything with you. If you're not wearing shoes when I call you to go be a missionary... Guess you're not wearing shoes when you go be a missionary. The call is immediate and the response is immediate. And that's a hard thing to hear because we say, but we have a house and we have car payments and we have mortgages and we have all these things that are going on in our life. You want us to sell it all and give it all away? Well, perhaps not. Um, Perhaps Jesus isn't calling you to sell it all and give it all away. He's asking you, though, to hold it all with an open hand so that if he were to tap you on the shoulder and say, there's a need, And if you but sell this, the need will be taken care of. That's how I'm planning on ministering to your neighbor is through you. Then you should be willing to say, that's an open-handed item. I can totally give that away. I'll totally sell that. That's not mine. That's God's for him to use. And that was a big challenge because we want to depend on the things that we have. So he told his disciples these very strong words, sell it all, give it all away. Don't take it with you. And the immediate concern in their heart was, but but how are we going to feed ourselves? How are we going to pay for ministry? How are we going to live? But, but, and so Jesus picks up here. I'm going to pick up in verse 24, which is a carryover from last week. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and that in which you place your trust. Therefore, Love that word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or about what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? Now look at the birds of the air. Well, they don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, will add even a single hour 
to your life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Well, consider the lilies of the field. They don't toil or spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like each one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? And what are we going to wear? For even the Gentiles seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows you need them all. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. Right. So I studied this passage all week long. And I, I, I'm feeling good about it. Don't be anxious. Fear not. These are good encouraging words. And then he ends, and we'll get to this in a moment, but then he ends with, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So fear not, but you're in trouble. Just think about that one for a moment as we go through this passage this morning. The connection between last week's passage, this call to be able to give, sell, go with pretty much nothing, open-handed, everything's God's. And this passage is one word. It's a throwaway word in our English vocabulary, therefore. It really doesn't mean much. Except that it connects two really important things. It's the, if you have a train and you've got a coupler between the two train cars, that's what the therefore is. The really important engine and the really important caboose, okay? And the coupler between the two of them is the word therefore, You cannot serve two masters, dot, dot, dot. Therefore, don't be anxious. That's really important. You cannot serve two masters. Therefore, stop worrying. Because Jesus is saying, worry will become your master. It's an intangible. So we don't often think about something that's intangible can rule over us. We think about money ruling over us. We think about time ruling over us. We think about our bosses ruling over us. But worry, Jesus says, is a master. One that evidently he thinks we're going to struggle with because he says fear not more often than not in Scripture. Jesus is making a very clear statement that worry is a master. And just as one must choose to serve God or those other things in which you place your trust, You must also choose to be sustained by faith or to worry. But you cannot serve both faith and worry. You must either live in fear or you must live in faith. And that's the dichotomy of the option before us this morning. And we think we can have both. Why we would want both, I don't know. But we are comfortable with our worries. You ever seen a dog who gets a wound? It's not pretty, right? Um, They just sit there and they lick their wound because it feels good. Worry will be that for us. We'll sit and worry and we'll play the what-if game and we will think about it and we will craft what-ifs and we will try and control the situation. And we've moved from worry being our master to being our own master to try and contrive a way to live our own life. And we have yet not stopped at that point to go, God, I'm worried. I don't know what to do. 
which would be the most important thing for us to do. You must either live in fear or in faith. But what is fear? The only fear is fear itself, or whatever that, you know, saying is. Fear is our response to a danger that is either real or perceived to be real. It doesn't need to be real to be scary, right? Um, Fear comes out of danger that is real or danger that is perceived to be potentially real. That's where fear comes from. And everyone has fears. Every single one of us has a fear. Some of us might even have phobias. Okay? Water. Deeper than my calf. I... It even gets my heart rate going just to think about it now. Terrifies the pants off me to get into that thing. Cold sweat, heartbeat. I mean, just lightheaded thinking about it, okay? Um, Terrifying. We all have fears. What do you fear? Don't raise your hand. Unless you want to be that honest. Okay. Do you fear sickness? Do you fear death? I like your answer, Jean. She's shaking her head no. That's good. Do you fear death by drowning? I don't even know why I put that on my list. Some of the folks of old, um, do you fear death by burning? Do you fear public speaking? Yeah, I do. I have stage fright. Do you fear being single? What do you fear? Do you fear being alone? What I want you to do right now is, what is it that you fear? I want you to feel what I'm feeling because I thought about water too long. I want you to feel that fear in you for a moment. Do you fear unemployment? What do you fear? Some of us have multiple fears. And fear begins in the mind. Okay? Whether it's real or perceived, you have that thought and then your heart rate increases. And your hands get shaky and adrenaline starts to course through your body. Let me give you some examples of how fear begins in the mind. You ever watch an Alfred Hitchcock movie? It's not what you saw, it's what you didn't. He was a master. These horror flicks of today that I don't even give a second look, they're, they're pointless. This guy was a master of... Crafting a story that made you fear what wasn't around the next corner. You thought for sure it was coming down the pipeline, and you didn't see it. It wasn't there. And there's something about what he let your mind fill in that was so much more terrifying than what he could have ever put on the screen. Fear is in your mind. Okay, I'm sorry. How about that? Any of you fear those? I'm not even going to look at it. You afraid of that? That's a tame one. Oh, man, don't Google scary clowns. Um, If you are scared of clowns, whether the nice ones or the scary ones, you might have something called calorophobia, the fear of clowns. And I'm sorry if you do this morning for putting that picture up there. It's an actual diagnosis, the fear of clowns. And I'll tell you what. If you don't have the fear of clowns, Google scary clowns after 10 o'clock at night. I did that last night. (laughs) Not okay. Um, A clown after 10 o'clock at night is up to no good. 
just being honest with you. I can be real, right? Okay. What about this one? You scared of that? I'm scared when we don't have that in our cupboard because our daughter loves that. Does peanut butter scare you? If so, you might have arachibutyrophobia. Which means the clinic, it's the clinical definition of the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Some people are so phobic of peanut butter getting stuck to the roof of their mouth that the very sight of peanut butter causes their heart to race. Right. <sighs> I'm not one of those people. I love my peanut butter. What about this one? Does it scare you to see a guy behind the pulpit? If so, you might have homilophobia, the fear of sermons. And some of you might say, that's exactly it. That's why. That's why I only come three or four times a year. That's why I stay away from church. That's why my family members don't go, because I'm scared of getting preached at. That's an actual diagnosis. And some of you might not even find this whole thing funny. You're not laughing at this because you might have galeophobia. The fear of laughter. Laughter terrifies you. That's, that's really sad to me. I love laughter. Some fears are rational, okay? I'll tell you a little story. I don't like spiders. I don't mind them when they're not on me. The minute they cross the threshold from not on me to on me, scream like a little girl. I was in my car at the drive-thru of the bank. I roll my window down, right? Because... You're at the drive-thru. I reach my hand out. I get the tube. I put my thing in the tube. I stick my hand out, and I see movement on my window. What's that? I look up right here, window, spider, large spider. And I think, that's not okay. Roll the window up. Spider's on the inside of the car. Panic. (laughs) That was not how it was supposed to go. Roll the window down. Roll the window up. Spider drops on me. Scream like a little girl. Lady on the inside of the bank teller is like, what's going on? Roll the window down, spider! (laughs) Spider crawls back up its web, like it dropped, you know, goes back up, roll the window up. Spider gets crushed in between the window and my, and I'm thinking, yes, Lord, crush it! Roll the window down a little, does it fall? Nope, it doesn't. Roll the window back up really hard, and it was dead. Tell ya, not okay. Some fears, rational. That was rational. Uh, yes, very. Spider was large enough to wear sneakers, man. Rational fear. Ugh. Some fears are not so rational. But to the person who's experiencing them, they are very real. And when Jesus said, Give it all, sell it all, go with nothing. The disciples had a very big fear in their mind. And that's why Jesus said, therefore. The disciples' fear was rational and reasonable. Jesus told the disciples, take nothing, sell everything. Sell all of the things you have, give them all away. Pretty much go into the world naked like the day you were born and preach the gospel. That is not the call they gave me when it came out of seminary. Go ye into Ketchikan and preach the gospel naked. Can I get an amen that you're thankful that's not the call that your pastor got? I am thankful for that as well. If that had been the call, I would have been terrified. And you would have all had homophobia. 
But God said, don't worry, fear not. So I want to look at what this fear might be. Fear is these things. Fear is not getting what we want. Your hope is hung on something in particular. I want to get married, but I don't think I'm going to get married, so I'm fearful about my future. We want to have kids. I don't think we can have kids. We're fearful about our future. I want to graduate. I think I'm going to graduate. I'm not going to graduate. I want a job. I want to serve God. I want to go into ministry. I want to own a house. I want to... What are your hopes hung on? I want a promotion. I don't think it's going to happen. I want to... What is it for you? And then the fear comes in. I'm not going to get it. It's not going to happen. The answer is no. I was denied. The door was shut. But if this could happen, what else is going to happen? If they said no to me here, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I should just give up this path. And we start to live a life based on that fear. We fear not getting what we want. We also fear getting what we want and losing it. There's a fear. That's why sometimes success can be more fearful than failure. When I was a youth pastor, I had a kid in my youth group. Oh, man, he was, he was one of those kids that you wanted to be when you were in high school. He seemed like he had it all together. I mean, athletic, incredibly intelligent. All the kids liked him. Quarterback on the football team. I mean, he, did, he was just like the kid. That, he went to church. He loved the Lord. You're like, man, I could be like that guy. It's an ounce, you know? And all the other kids looked at him like that. It was very clear. And he was humble. He was great. But I got to talking him with him one day at camp, and he was really struggling. I was like, man, what's wrong? It seems like your life is all together. And I was kind of prepping him for, you know, some sort of trivial thing. And he said, I'm scared to fail. Everybody expects me to always be on. This is what he said. He said, I intentionally miss the catch on the field when it's a touchdown catch because I don't want to always be the one that catches it. He carried the success and the burden of success so strong that he was scared of failing ultimately, so he chose to intentionally fail along the way. That was better in his mind. He was scared of getting what he wanted and losing it. And we do this in our own right, too. It's not just the kid who drops the football pass on purpose. We're married. What if we get a divorce? What if we can't have a family? What if our kids don't love God? I got the job. The economy tanked. What if I lose my job? We got the house. What if we can't afford the mortgage? What then? It's the fear of getting what you wanted and then holding on to it so tight because you're so scared of losing it because your security is wrapped up in that. Which is why Jesus says, sell it all, give it all. (laughs) The heart longs for something and the idea of losing it causes fear. And then there's this third fear, getting what you don't want. I got cancer. I don't want it. I got fired. That's not what I wanted. My kids don't love the Lord. That's not what I wanted. My spouse left and nobody wants to love me. That's not what I wanted. All these things happen in life. Well, that's not what I wanted. 
I fear that. That's the worst case scenario. And we live like that. Our American culture, I don't, can't speak to other countries, our American culture is based on trying to negotiate this river of fear. We fear not getting what we want, but then we get it and we're scared of losing it. And then we lose it and that's not what we want. And so we're constantly going, how do I negotiate this so that I can protect myself? Worry, 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 worry. Everything is how can I cover my bases so that I don't have to be worried, so that I can be safe in my own little world. It's fear. But we need to recognize that fear is not always sinful. We hear the command, fear not, and some people will interpret that like a stern father saying, stop, stop being such a scaredy pants. I've talked to people who say that's what they think this passage means. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Stop being such a ninny. Don't be scared. There's nothing to be scared of. That's not what this passage is saying. Jesus is actually saying, fear not. I love you. I understand. Fear's real. I get it. Um, I want to promise you something. He recognizes that fear is not always sinful because it's very real and there are things that are okay to experience in this realm. You send your son or daughter off to be a soldier. They're serving on the front lines. There's real fear there. Your child gets their driver's license. There's real fear there. Your daughter goes on her first date. There's real fear there. Right? My daughter's not going to date. That's how I'm solving that one. Your spouse gets cancer. There's real fear there. Not, not all fears are sinful. And you're kind of silly if you don't have fears. Because we live in a life where there are bad things that happen. The end of the passage. There's trouble today, man, Jesus says. There are things that are very real. But every fear is an opportunity to either run to or from God with that fear. God is the source of comfort and hope and help. And every time you have a worry or a fear, you have an opportunity to try and negotiate it on your own or to run to God and say, you're Lord over all. So help me. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says don't worry. It's not that he says don't feel the emotion. It's not that he says turn the off switch and become a robot. He doesn't say stop feeling He's saying, put your feelings and your worries underneath his lordship. And there, they will make more sense. Fear reveals a few things. It reveals our values, our loves, our priorities, the things that we long for. Because you only fear losing what you love. And you only fear getting what you hate. It reveals what is essential to us, what is primary for us. And so this is why Jesus talks about it. So then he gives these two examples in scripture, right? The, the birds and the flowers. I just want you to think for a moment about Jesus. Rough around the edges kind of man. Man's man. Not pretty to look at, scripture says. Probably a short haircut. That's how they would wear it back in the day. Not like long, flowy, pretty Jesus that you see pictures of. Um, robe is dirty. Calluses on his hands. He's talking about real life with his disciples. And he says, think about the birds and the flowers. And it seems like, what, Jesus? 
this is not, you're like a construction worker. I mean, picture a construction worker or a trucker or someone who works on the fishing uh, industry. It's a really man's man kind of guy. And he sits you down. He's like, I got words of wisdom. Think about the pretty birds and the pretty flowers. And it just seems a little like, I don't understand what you're saying to me, Jesus. This is weird example giving. And so I struggled with it. What does he mean? Because every time I read this passage, I see, um, you see pictures of pretty birds and beautiful flowers. And I don't understand how that applies to my life because I don't relate to a pretty bird or pretty flower. Okay. Um, and as I started to pray about this, the Lord revealed something to me. And I want to reveal it to you. And hopefully there's some truth here that you can take away. Consider the birds. Well, nod to Alfred Hitchcock. Okay. Um, Consider the birds. It doesn't mean a pretty songbird. He's talking about ravens. Um, Did you know what a group of ravens is called? A murder. Okay. Um, A group of ravens is called a murder. And I wonder if that's because, down through time, ravens have been on the list of unclean animals. You can't use them for sacrifices. Societies from the very beginning of time to now look at them and go, eh, they're scavengers, they're kind of dirty, they carry disease, they're unclean, there's no point, we can't use them for anything beneficial, we don't eat them, we don't offer them on the altar of sacrifice. They're pretty much worthless in this day and age that Jesus is talking about. But he sits down and he tells his people, consider the ravens. what What he's saying is, the thing that means the least to you that you would walk by and say, insignificant and unworthy of my time. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the ravens, for example. They don't sow and they don't reap. You don't care about them. They're not farmers. They don't have combines. They're not trying to figure out how to go to the grocery store. They don't have a storehouse. But Jesus says, God feeds them. They're unclean, worthless to society, God doesn't want them as a sacrifice, and yet God takes care of them. And this is where God started to teach me something. Sometimes in my life, I've felt like a raven. I've done things. I've said things. God can't use me. I'm the least member of society. I'm not productive. There have been seasons of my life where I've been more than a raven than I want to admit. I wasn't useful to God. I didn't listen. Most people wouldn't want to hang out with me. And you want to know what? If God takes care of those ravens, then when I've done things or said things, and I think God can't use me, he still cares for me. And Jesus wants us to understand that even when we think we're worthless, he wants us to know that he still cares for us. If he's going to care for an animal, which he won't even receive on the sacrificial altar then when we're at our worst, God will still care for us. He will still provide for us. We cannot be outside of God's provision because we're his children. We're part of his creation. Beyond that, um, ravens don't bear God's image. Whether or not we're walking with him, whether or not we're obeying him, we bear God's image, and God loves and honors those things in us that are his. And by loving and cherishing us and providing for us, He can woo us closer to him. He is willing and glad to help us when we are in sin because he loves us and cares for us. 
even when we live apart from him. But then there's the lilies. They're beautiful, right? I googled lily. I didn't realize how pretty they are. I didn't even really know the name lily with the item flower. I, I never put the two together. That's a lily, I think, right? Um, I don't know. I'm not a gardener. Uh, there are lots of colors. Lilies are in, like, an amazing array of patterns and colors. It's downright beautiful. No wonder Jesus mentioned lilies in particular. Now, imagine again for me, rough construction worker Jesus, okay? And he's talking to you about God, and he says, consider the lilies. Gentlemen, don't raise your hand. How many of you have had a lily day? You're like, today I'm going to meditate on the lily. I'm going to observe the lily, smell the lily, sit next to the lily, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to me about the lily. Anybody? No? It seems a little weird, right? And so I imagine the disciples are like, our Lord has been in the sun too long. But Jesus wants us to understand something. The lilies grow beautiful, naturally. They don't have fashion shows. They don't have malls. They don't watch what not to wear episodes. But the lilies are beautiful. They look good. I mean, how many of you love it when the flowers spring up in the springtime? They got a tulip or two in the garden there and these beautiful purple flowers that are growing. The flowers come and you're like, that's beautiful. That's amazing. God's creation is so beautiful. But they don't toil for their clothing. They don't spin fabric. And Jesus would say, even Solomon, who was the richest, the wisest, had everything. Even he was not as seen in beauty as these lilies are. God sees that the lily is even more arrayed than Solomon. Where the ravens might have been considered worthless to society, the lilies would have brought fragrance and color and beauty. People would gather them into their homes and enjoy and give thanks to God. And we need to know this morning and what Jesus is saying to us, to our hearts, is he doesn't play favorites with his provision. Sometimes we want to disqualify ourselves or extra qualify ourselves based on our actions or inactions. But the reality is, raven or lily, and we go through phases, God doesn't play favorites. God provides for his children. Whether or not we are walking with him, God loves us. He's a good dad. He takes care of us. He says, do not seek what you are to eat or drink. Don't be worried because all of the nations seek after these things, but your father knows that you need them. Your father knows you have needs like clothes and food and drink. It's not a sin to have those needs or to have those items. It's a sin to allow those needs to dominate your life in a way that produces fearful anxiety. Jesus says this, the remedy. Seek the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things are going to be added unto you. They're blessings and benefits and bonuses about being in the kingdom of heaven. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, says it like this. I read these in parallel where they are so that I can understand the perspectives of the other gospel authors. It says this in Luke. I love this language. Jesus says to you, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that so much nicer than a stern tone of voice? It's this very much fatherly wrap you up in your arms. Fear not, little flock. You're a little lamb. I care for you. You're my child. 
You might have strayed. I love you. I'll bring you back. I'll pick the briars out of your wool, tend your wounds. Fear not, little flock. Matthew ends his little dialogue here with Jesus. He says this, Stop worrying about tomorrow, for there is enough worry for today. Not where I like to end a passage, right? Um, There is enough worry for today that you shouldn't get ahead of yourself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He's honest. He's not saying that there's nothing to fear, but he gives validity to the concerns and, uh, and draws us back to him. He's not saying, like some of our parents have said to us, you're tough, you'll be fine. Instead, he's saying you have a father who loves you and who happens to be king. And generally speaking, when the Bible says fear not, it's followed by a description of who God is. Because that's the only way we can fear not, is by grounding ourselves in God. What you believe determines how you live and how you worship. And I love that Jesus is honest here. In the rough paraphrase, life is scary. You're not going to make it unless you spend time with God. And so Jesus says, in the face of fear, shift your eyes to heaven. Your focus is to shift from fears to father in faith. Because our dad is bigger than our enemies. Our dad is bigger than our fears. And he loves us and takes care of us and is generous and good. And so you say, I get it. I believe it. God is a loving father and he takes away my sin and he adopts me into his family through his death and burial and resurrection. And I believe that God is my father and that he's a king and that he has a perfect kingdom. And I know that I'm supposed to combat my fear through my father and that in that kingdom there is nothing to fear. There's no thieves and no lack and no decay. My transmission won't blow up, insert your fear. It won't happen in the kingdom of God. But what does Jesus know about fear and worry anyway? Have you ever been in a situation where someone has said to you, they're there, it's okay, I'm sure it will get better, and you're like, you don't get what I'm going through? You've never been here. You don't understand my worry. Like Your words don't really mean anything to me because you don't understand. But you need to understand, and, and this is the closing section, you need to understand that Jesus understands worry. Unlike other religions' view of their gods, where God might be far away and he's never been here on earth and he's never walked life with us, our God says fear not because he's lived through the things that we've lived through. He came into human history, became a man. His name was Jesus. In Hebrews it says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us, but because he's been here he can Jesus, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, doer of miracles, meek and mild, strong and wild, knows deeply and intimately what worry is. He worried for the world while he was sitting in heaven. So much so, he saw the suffering of our sinful lives and worried that we would be forever separated from God. He was on earth and he worried for his disciples because he knew what was coming. He wanted them to stand strong and he was worried for them because of the trials and temptations and persecutions. Jesus worried in the garden the night he was betrayed. In fact, so great was his worry and anxiety of the coming events of the next couple days that he actually had physical symptoms from his worry. 
Any of you ever have so much stress or worry that it displayed physically? Heartburn, blood pressure, um, headaches, eye twitches, sleeplessness? Yes, no? Okay. Jesus was so worried about the impending beatings and crucifixion and the pain that he would endure that he actually, his blood pressure became so great he burst all of the capillaries just under the layer of his skin, which is why he bled, sweated blood. That's how worried he was. He was a man. He knew what it was going to cost him. He was worried. That's why he can say to his disciples, is worrying going to even add an hour to your life? No, it's going to shorten it. Jesus worried for his mom when he, he was on the cross. He'd been there to care for his mom. He loved his mom. He'd hugged for her and told her jokes when she was sad. And now she was standing at the foot of the cross watching him suffer. A mom's worst nightmare. And he was worried about her from the cross, about her emotions and her future and her well-being. And so he said, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And he wasn't saying, look at me now. In fact, he was saying, look away from me. And here's another disciple to take care of you. I'm worried for you, Mom. Jesus was worried about going to the cross to atone for the sins of the world and endure the entire wrath of God. He experienced difficulty and distress and fear, and he worked through every single one of those through prayer and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, fear not, little flock, he understands what it's like to suffer physically. So if that's your fear, he gets it. He understands grief and loss. If that's your fear, he gets it. He understands what it's like to die. If that's your fear, he gets it. He understands what it's like to have people malign your reputation. What it's like to have your family think you're crazy or disown you or turn their back on you. He knows what it's like to have friends that you can't depend on. Because they were all asleep in the garden when he needed them. He knows what it's like to have someone you love that you've poured your life into sabotage you, steal from you, betray you, and then kill themselves. His name was Judas. Jesus loved him and served him. He knows what it's like to be single, not to have a family. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to be broke. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to be heading towards something very difficult. So isn't it good news that Jesus isn't just another religious guy with a cushy, comfortable life giving us principles that he himself had no need of? That's not our Jesus. Our Jesus offers us real hope because he's walked through these things. Our Jesus, when he says, don't worry, fear not, It's not a command that you can't live up to. It's a promise that he will bear you up and say, Fear not, I am with you. I have been through these things and I can see you through these things. Fear not is a promise of one who has been there and conquered it and will give us the ability to do so as well. That is the Jesus we love, the one who says, Fear not. So this morning, we're going to pray and we're going to worship. And I'm going to remind you that this is a great time to say, I have worries and fears, Lord, but I don't want them to run my life. Confessing your fears before the Lord is the best thing you can do 
submit them before the lordship of Christ because he is Lord over all, which means he's Lord over our worries and the circumstances of them. If you so desire, the prayer wall will be open at any point during the service, especially after the service as we reflect. Go, put your worries up on the prayer wall. Let us pray for you in your worries. These are very real real needs that we have, real struggles that we endure. Let us pray for you as a congregation because you might find that you're not the only one with that worry. You might find someone's been through that and can say, I've been there. Let me walk with you. Let me encourage you. Let me show how God has worked in my life and how I believe he will work in yours. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, now these two weeks have been hard for me as I've studied these passages. You, I mean, you know my own worries. Some of them are big and some of them are little and Sometimes they play more of a prominent part in my life than I want them to. And so right now, Father, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I let my worries overtake me. I'm sorry that I lose sleep at night, that I don't rest well in you. Your word says that you don't sleep, which means you're working continually for your glory and for our well-being. And I stay up late worrying when you're saying, rest, I got this covered, I'm working for you. My mercies are new in the morning, get some sleep. I confess to you, Lord, that I need you more and more every day. Would you take my worries? I'm laying them down this morning, Father. Would you take them? Um, I know that some of the situations might not change for us. But, Lord, I know that when I walk hand in hand with you, I cast my cares upon you, you receive them. You walk me through them. You teach me how to be a better follower, how to live life in holiness, how to love you and love others more. I pray the same for everyone here this morning, Lord. Would you speak to us? Would you encourage us? Would you help us cast our cares aside? Would you pry our fingers off these things that we hold on to? We don't want to live in submission to two masters. We can't. We want to live in submission to you. And so we put everything at your feet this morning, Father. And we trust you with it because we know that whether... We fall on the raven side or the lily side or somewhere in the middle. You love us, you care for us, and there's nothing we can do to outrun your love and protection. It's always there waiting for us. And we give you thanks for that, Father. You are a good, good God, and we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Receive the benediction this morning. Jesus' words to your heart. Fear not, little flock, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Go and live in worry no more. Amen? Amen. 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 Go in peace and happy Mother's Day.